All right, we're back. Today we have a few topics that you and I shared or talked about last week that we wanted to bring into today's episode, Paul, and talking about hosting parties. What's acceptable as party hosts, especially at our age now in our 40s? <laughs> Me getting closer to 50, which is kind of scary. Yeah, I'm sure that does seem a little scary to you. I'm, I'm a few years behind, so I can make jokes. <laughs> And then we're going to talk about something new, a new segment, How Stuff Work. What happens to our donated clothes? And as usual, we'll finish up with our weird news story, which, Paul, you've brought something to the table here we can talk about. I have, yeah. All right, let's get into this hosting parties thing. This was something you wanted to discuss. It was on your mind. You thought it would make a good thing to talk about on the podcast. Tell me more about that. What's What, what made this come up for you? Yeah, thanks, Clark. Yeah, it's just something that sort of came to mind. Hopefully, uh, a little bit of a fun topic that we can discuss here and maybe get some some differing opinions. And I guess it's somewhat applicable because, well, we hope barbecue season is going to be coming up pretty soon, uh, being springtime and all, and hopefully the COVID quarantine doesn't impede that too much. But yeah, when we were talking about hosting of parties and is there a minimum requirement or a minimum expectation when one hosts a party? And party can mean many different things. It can mean a, a f anywhere from a, a formal dinner party with various couples, or it can be something a little bit more laid back, such as a, a summer barbecue. What do we think should be the minimum as a host that you should be, that what would be expected from you in that you know, providing appropriate amounts of food. So, for example, you, in my opinion, you wouldn't necessarily invite people over to a barbecue or a dinner and expect them to bring their own food. You know, if people offer food, then that's great. But I don't think one should expect that others should bring their own food. Meanwhile, all you're providing is just the venue. And I suppose the same would also apply for alcoholic refreshments as well. I'm of the opinion that, from my own personal perspective, I'm within an age bracket and also an income bracket when I can afford to buy beer or wine or whatever it is that, that my guests would be drinking. I think there's a minimum ex expectation that you should be providing a certain amount of alcoholic beverages. Again, if people want to bring some additional beverages and that that's fine and often people bring you know a bottle of wine as as a as a gift for the host which is which is very nice and very appreciated but the, the old expression where quote unquote we're in our Carlsberg years I, I think there is that expectation that when you invite people over you should be a, the gracious host I've been to many barbecues and dinner parties at, at your place and I've never left disappointed I, I'm I'd like to hear your thoughts on this well, first of all, we're now, as I mentioned, we're in our 40s, getting close to 50 now myself, and the days of holding a BYOB party is is an unacceptable concept to me. It's different if you bring alcohol to the party because it's something you specifically like to drink, but to me, at our age, when you host a party, it's not BYOB. Bring your own food, I think it comes back to what's the intent of the party? Is this a potluck? Potlucks are perfectly acceptable, but to host a party and expect people to show up with food without talking about it first, I mean, you always get the, you tend to get the, the people who will ask, can I bring anything? And I, I usually defer to a 
no on that because I don't want people to, I think people mostly ask that because they are trying to be nice. Some people are asking because they want to help out, but I think most people just ask that to be, to be nice. Well, that's a good point you raise. When people say, is there something I can bring? And I think that's pretty customary. And it's fine if you say, yeah, sure, you know, bring a bag of chips or something like that, or bring some pop or bring some ice, something simple. But when you're asking, if somebody asks you, what can I bring? And you ask them to bring the main dish, I think that's a bit of a problem. Well, yeah. And going back to the intent of the party. So you mentioned about food. If you're hosting a dinner party, it goes without saying that you're going to be providing dinner at the party. And you had... and. Well, I was going to say you had mentioned potlucks. I think maybe there's an exception there with potlucks in that if that's an agreed upon thing amongst friends to say that, yeah, we're going to have a potluck Christmas party or something, then then that's a different story. But So a couple of views I have, if you're going to host a party and you don't want to worry about food and whether you have to feed people, then you need to host it in a time frame that isn't going to run across or through dinner. And you need to be very implicit. So if you're going to have a party and have people show up at 4 p.m. and not serve some type of dinner to them, then that's going to be a problem for most guests because they're going to ask themselves on the way there, what are we, what are we doing? Do we eat or not eat? Like at four o'clock, I'm on my way to a party. I'm assuming that there's going to be some type of a meal. And I don't necessarily mean a sit down dinner unless it's being impl- called a dinner party. But it, if I get invited to a party that starts at four and the expectation is it's going to run till you know, later in the night, I'm expecting there to be some food provided. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's pretty rare to have to invite people over no matter sort of what time of the day and that it, it's at some point you're going to have some kind of overlap with whether it be lunch or dinner or something, something of that nature. It does get a little bit tricky in that regards where you know I, I think it, it's a rare occurrence when you have people over and you would not be serving any kind of food i i don't know from from my perspective i think it, it comes down to a pride issue as as a host you want to make a good impression and you want to make sure that people your, your guests when they come over that they are well taken care of that they they go home full and you know their their bellies full and happy that type of thing Yeah, I mean, what kind of image are you trying to project? If you're hosting a party, you want people to eat well, drink well, and have a good time. Those are the three main criteria. So for me, I want to provide a decent amount of food. I want it to be at a quality level. I want the alcohol. Of course, I'm going to provide alcohol. I have a, a rule. I don't know if this is official etiquette, but I never serve the bottles that are brought in as as guest wine that never gets poured unless we run out, which I think everybody can accept the fact that if we run out of alcohol, that we can dip into some of the guest wine. But I never crack a bottle of wine that is brought in by a guest. Yeah, that's actually a good point. And maybe one of the reasons why I brought up this topic is because maybe in some of my past experiences, I've perhaps experienced maybe a a little bit of a pet peeve in some ways where you go over to someone's house, whether it's a, it could be a a barbecue invite or just an informal get together. And the hosts are completely unprepared. They, They don't give you, they serve minimal drinks or there's no food being served, and you, you end up leaving the place saying, geez, i got to stop off at McDonald's because I'm starving. 
Um, but yeah, I, I've been in those situations where you go to someone's house and you, know, you bring a six pack of beer just to be polite you know, as, a, as a host gift. And your six pack of beer is the only beer that's there. So as a, as a host, they're completely unprepared. So once your six pack of beer is gone, that's it. That's it for the night. I, I've experienced that and it's, it's a bit of a peeve. I, I wouldn't do it myself. Some people might be okay with that. It's one thing to bring in your own alcohol because it's something specific. Like to ask a host to bring a specific alcohol that's, you know, Belgian beer from some specific region of Belgium because, you know, it's made by Trappist monks and it's the only kind of beer you drink. It's not fair to expect a host is going to have that on hand. So I think if there's something specific or you have a dietary restriction of some type that you can't drink certain types of alcohol because of, you know, your gluten, you have a gluten allergy that it's not, I don't think you should depend on a host to make sure that you're being taken care of. Now, it's one thing to say, I'm vegetarian, so I'm coming to your barbecue. That's perfectly fine. I think having some vegetarian options are a good thing. But then, you know, even that can go a bit into it if someone starts talking about, well, they'll only eat certain types of, like, say, halal meat or kosher foods that can get a little bit tricky most people i i know out there who have very specific dietary restrictions usually bring their own items they'll they'll just say hey i i only i can only eat kosher food i brought some with me do you mind cooking this for me i think that's that's reasonable Yes, very good point where if you do have dietary restrictions or or an allergy it, it's it might be a little unfair to expect that your host know everything there is to know about your dietary restrictions. I think as a host, as long as you provide the appropriate and adequate amount of food to your guests, and but I, I also think there's perhaps a, a quality standpoint as well. We mentioned about beer and, and us being in a certain age and income bracket. And I don't know about you, but if, if I were to go to a party and someone serves me a bucket beer... I might think in my mind that they might be a little bit on the cheap side. I, I think Explain that to people. What, what do you mean by a buck of beer? Well, d- discounted beers. Um, typically, the beers that are a dollar a beer, y- you get what you pay for. Um, in my Wildcat. Yeah, Wildcat, Natty Ice, Lakeport. There's some pretty terrible beers out there in the market. And you know about these because... I used to drink them a long, long, long time ago. I, I should note that. Back in my 20s when everyone is uh, living off, off of a shoestring budget, yeah, you, you drink the, the cheap beer. But I think once you get to a certain age or reach a certain income level, you should have no business drinking those types of beers. You, you need to have a little bit of pride and realize that, hey, if I'm going to consume our precious calories, I'm going to be drinking some good beer. So I think well, if I think, if somebody serves you cheap food or cheap beer, I don't know, that might leave a bit of an impression on me as well. What do you think? I think we might be running the risk of offending people that, you know, maybe still are on it. They have to keep their budget low. Um, so I think it comes down to personal choice. If you're going to host a party, what sort of image are you hoping to portray? And no, I, I, if you are somebody that's very frugal, well, then then you have to be frugal, and that's just, just going to have to be accepted. You're not going to be with friends who don't accept that part of who you are. 
No, and I, I understand. And you raise a good point where it's perhaps unfair of me to put my expectations on other people in terms of, of what I deem to be good quality. If somebody is of an income bracket where they truly can't afford decent beer, and if, if the buck of beers is all that they can afford, but they wish to hold a party, then that's fine. I'm, I certainly don't hold that against them, and, and any effort is, is, is certainly appreciated. But it sounds like you do. It sounds like you would hold that against them. What you said earlier, if they well, served you buck a buck of beer or buck beer, you would be you would be disappointed. Well, perhaps yeah. I I need to to perhaps clarify that statement. I think, at least amongst my circle of friends, you know, people that I know are of a certain income bracket. I think if if certain people were to provide, let's say, cheaper quality beer or cheaper quality food, I, I might think about it a little bit. So for example, if I went to your place and you served me a buck of beer, I might question it. I, I, I would definitely mm. say, come on, Clark, what are you doing here? <laughs> I, I know you can afford the good stuff. So uh, yeah, I, I think that that's where I'm going with this, is that certain, knowing the, perhaps the income bracket, and not to by any means judge your friends by their income bracket, by any means, but you know, certain people, you you know that if they have a nice house, they got a nice car in the driveway, yet they're serving you a bucket beer, something doesn't quite make sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, again, I think it comes down to what, what image do you want to portray? I like to host parties. I'd rather host one party every five years and have it be at the quality level that I personally am comfortable with and proud of than to have a party, you know, twice a year or five times a year and it not be at the quality I would want it to be. So I think you just host less, less parties for me personally. That's how I feel about it. Um, yeah, I guess we should move on. Anything else you wanted to talk about on this uh, topic? No, I think we covered everything uh, just to kind of close off by just saying, I, I think for me personally, it's, I view it as, as a source of pride. When I invite people over, I want to make a good impression. I want to treat them well. And for me, I, I pull out the red carpet for my guests. Good. Yeah, I do too. I think it's just something I I take pride in hosting parties that are of a quality level, and, and I fully agree. All right, I wanted to talk about a product that I'm currently enjoying. We introduced this on our last episode as sharing something we're enjoying. We don't have sponsors for our show right now. I don't know if we ever will. We'll keep this a sponsor-free podcast, but something I'm really enjoying the use of is my Bose SoundSport wireless headphones. I was told Bluetooth earphones would be a life changer, and I was skeptical, and I got a hold of these Bose SoundSport, which are really nice quality and are and did exactly what they were promised and that was they did change my life going out for runs without having something in my my pocket or like attached to my phone as i'm running not having to hold my phone anymore my bose sound sports i'm loving them so this episode is partially sponsored unofficially by bose sound sport and i wanted to go in a little bit of a different direction for what I wanted to discuss today, not so much an actual product, but this was actually a book that I just finished reading, which I found particularly interesting. Uh, Babe Ruth, A Superstar's Legacy. It's written by Jerry Amernick, who is actually a Canadian author. What I liked about this book 
is that it talked about Babe Ruth's legacy. So it wasn't necessarily a biography on Babe Ruth, per se, but it explained why his legacy runs so deep, why he's still so recognizable as an iconic American figure so many years after he's been dead. And what I found about the book is that it explained in terms of his legacy that the Babe Ruth estate is still very much a money-generating enterprise. It's done so much, it's done a lot of good with incorporating Ruth's legacy, the money it generates, it donates to various kids' leagues and charities, uh, sponsoring the Babe Ruth Baseball League. And for me, I guess my biggest takeaway is that when you hear about Babe Ruth, there's oftentimes some negative connotations about him. We all know he's a great athlete, but you hear about Babe Ruth being an alcoholic, a womanizer. But that's not necessarily a true reflection of who he was as a person. That doesn't is is not an accurate depiction of of his image and in the legacy that he has uh, that has transcended not only sports but American culture in itself. And actually, you might be interested to know that he was a very very large influence on Japanese baseball. If it wasn't for Babe Ruth, there may not necessarily be a Japanese baseball league, or certainly not to the extent that it is today. So this is a great read. Highly recommend the book. And I'd like to perhaps talk about this uh, in more detail at a future date. Yeah, happy to do that. And you're right. Babe Ruth was very influential in the introduction of baseball in Japan here. In fact, there's a stadium very close to us that was a stadium, or the location anyway, where Babe Ruth and a couple other high-profile major leaguers kind of came here on sort of a barnstorming promotional tour before World War II, of course. Um, I think it was before World War II. Yeah, 1934. The the book definitely goes into a lot of detail about that. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to talking about that a little bit more. Absolutely. All right. How stuff works. I wanted to talk about what really happens to your used clothing donations. I think this is something that people may find surprising in a lot of ways is what happens when you donate your clothes to, you know, those boxes you see sometimes outside of supermarkets that you donate clothes and other items. And we came across something here where it describes what actually does happen to your, this is a Reader's Digest article of what happens to your clothing when you donate it. And I found some shocking statistics here that I wanted to share with folks. For example, when you're donating clothing, the truth is, according to this article, that even when you're donating old clothing, 84% of that clothing ends up in landfills and incinerators, according to the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency in the U.S., The Council for Textile Recycling reports that the average U.S. citizen throws away between 70 to 81 pounds of clothing and other textiles annually. So people who think they're donating that favorite sweater that they're going to, it's going to end up a third world country who needs a warm sweater to keep them warm and protected from the elements may be very surprised to know that half of this stuff just gets ground up and converted into other materials like auto shop rags or carpet underlays. And I I wanted to talk a little bit about what you and I think about that. Like is that a is that a ethical issue? Do you do you personally get disturbed 
hearing that, that knowing your clothes where you thought it was going to be used by somebody in a third world country is actually being recycled into something totally different than what you originally intended it or thought it was going to be used for? Well, that's a great topic you raised there, Clark. And it certainly piqued my interest. And the reason being is that I can actually, I can actually speak quite well about this topic because I have first-hand knowledge of this. In my job within the insurance industry, as part of my job, I have gone out to various building owners and some of the, the tenants within these buildings happen to be these textile recyclers. So I've been to these places and, and witnessed it with my own eyes and, and have seen firsthand how these facilities work and what truly happens to your clothing when it gets donated. So I guess before I can answer that question, I should perhaps back up a little bit and just explain a little bit how it does kind of work. When your clothing gets donated, depends various charities, um, such as, for example, Canadian Diabetes, when you donate clothing, the charities don't necessarily use the clothing themselves. How the charities make money is that they sell the clothing to third parties. So they would sell it and get certain, I'm not sure how much it would go for, dollars or cents per pound or whatever. Anyway, they sell these bundles of clothing to these recyclers who, as I said, pay them by the pound. So these textile recyclers, they go into these sorting facilities, and these sorting facilities obviously are, are run on a pretty thin margin. They hire, unfortunately, very low-skilled minimum wage laborers. It's not a, a great job, but I suppose it, it does provide employment to a lot, of, um, a lot of people. But how it works is that there's large sorting areas, so what they're looking for in terms of what they sort, is that there's certain vintage clothing that could still have some value to it. I know that there's a, a value attached to old uh, concert t-shirts. So there is some stuff that can be resold. But generally, items in good condition, they get bundled and, and shipped very often to developing countries. And then any stained or worn clothing, that is the clothing that is typically recycled for, for scrap. So such as insulation, uh, rags, carpet padding, that type of thing. These, This is a true recycling operation. You know, in my experience with them, typically housekeeping is, is really poor. Uh, there's certainly a fire loading concern when, when you go into these facilities. So they're not the, the greatest of conditions, but they, they do serve a purpose, I suppose. All right, now, you know, you're getting into the uh, the insurance stuff, which yeah, uh, I sh- I should stop might, myself might put there, our yeah. listeners to sleep. <laughs> no, I um, definitely don't want to do so- that. All right, so how do you feel about this? I mean, you donate your clothes at one of those boxes or go into a Goodwill and you drop off a a stack of clothing. And then now we find out this stuff isn't actually going in the the form that, uh, not always in the form that we thought it was going to go, whether it's a pair of pants, a pair of shoes. What do you think? I mean, does that bother you that this stuff is not actually going in in the current state that you had it in that's going to maybe be ground up and used for other purposes does that does that bother you honestly no no it doesn't because when i when it leaves my hands it has no sentimental value i know that some people might have some sentimental value to some of the products or the stuff that they donate and obviously everyone wants to make sure that whatever they donate gets used but 
what it comes down to, it's a recycling process. So as long as someone benefits, whether it be a charity benefiting from selling the product in bulk, as mentioned, a lot of those products do make their way to developing countries, places in in Africa, for example, that would get a, a bulk of clothing from North America. You often wonder why there's, you see pictures of people in Africa wearing like a New York Yankees World Series t-shirt. Well, it's not because they went to Yankee Stadium, it's because they got it from a clothing donation. That That's how the, the clothing makes it over there. But, you know, if the clothing does get recycled, then it kind of serves the purpose because I think what we don't realize is how much waste there is. If by recycling clothing, we can reduce carbon footprint it can if 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 those textiles if they can be reused somehow which in some way might potentially benefit the environment in some ways um average us citizen disposes of 70 to 80 pounds of clothing a year that is unbelievable think about it like it's just the yeah. sheer volume of clothing that gets wasted or I won't say wasted but people just discard and it makes you realize that people probably overspend and, and buy more than what they need to. And it's not until you see how much stuff you, you give away or you donate, it makes you realize that most of your clothing purchases are probably not necessary. There's something here about some of the negative effects that happens with these, these donations to third world countries. So they talk here about bend over street markets, they're called. Bend over street markets. Never heard of that. These items are, this is a quote from the article, these items are sold cheaply at bend over street markets where customers bend over to select garments laying on the ground and it's made a devastating impact on local indigenous markets. Countries like Rwanda, Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda and Burundi are seeking to ban clothes and shoe imports to protect local businesses. So that's something to think about is that these these clothes end up in these countries and then they're actually competing against some of the clothing retailers in those local markets, those products. So that could be creating an unfair advantage for whoever, whoever's selling those, those donated items in these indigenous countries. It's actually hurting the local retailers. But I guess what else would we do with that clothing, though? What, what are your thoughts when you go and donate clothing in, in the local bin? Yeah, I, I don't really have an issue with the fact that the clothes end up being recycled into something else. I think there is something to be explored, perhaps, in terms of if it if a box says the Canadian Diabetes Association, the name of whatever the name of the charity is, how much is the charity getting from these donations? If if they're getting, let's say, if the third party is getting. $2 a pound, let's just say rough numbers, if they're getting $2 a pound, but Diabetes Association is getting 10 cents of that, is it really fair to be putting up Canadian Diabetes Association on one of these boxes, which is getting people to donate based on the fact they think they're helping people with diabetes? And who are they helping? Are they helping people with diabetes in Canada? I guess so, if it's saying Canadian Diabetes Association. But I think it is one of those things that where transparency is important. I do think I would rather see clothes be recycled, but according to this article, like 80% of that stuff ends up in landfill anyway. So I, to me, it's about the transparency aspect that, and what I wanted to do by talking about this is really raising the awareness that there's more to it than just donating 
your favorite sweater to charity and expecting it's going to end up on a little boy in uh, some remote part of Russia who's or, or North Korea or somewhere, when that is likely not the case. And even if it was, it may have been sold for a profit by somebody in one of those countries who it's not really intending, it may not be what people intended when they donate these things in the first place. Exactly. I think people don't realize how many hands are involved in this. There's a lot of companies that broker this these bundles of used clothing. There is profit that is made on this. Otherwise, these companies wouldn't be in business. Um, there is jobs associated with it, but they are very low-paying jobs. So one might argue if that's a benefit or not. My thought process on this, if you have that favorite sweater and you want to make sure that it ends up on someone's back that really needs it, you might want to investigate perhaps donating directly to a homeless shelter or you know, a shelter for abused women or something like that. If you donate directly to the charity itself or, or a shelter of some kind, perhaps there might be a better chance that that clothing may end up going directly to the people you want it to. But otherwise, yeah, once you typically when you donate the clothing in those bins you see in mall parking lots, once it goes in that bin, God only knows where it goes from there. Well, I worked in a I worked in a homeless shelter for uh, we did a volunteer thing at work and everything we were giving out to people in the homeless shelter was brand new. It was stuff that was donated from retailers all over the place. We weren't giving out anything that was used. So, I think it comes down to, if you want to see grandma's sweater end up on the back of somebody else somewhere, you need to ask the question, what's going to happen to this product or to this thing I'm giving away? What's going to happen to it? Where where does it go? What happens to it? I think you have to kind of trace trace the source or follow the source of what's happening to these these items. I think the big message here is that people need to think twice about buying stuff. They said, from my personal experiences, when I've been in these facilities, just the sheer volume of, of clothing is just takes your breath away. And I think we just need to take a step back when next time we go into the clothing store, say, do we really need this? Time for weird news. I was thinking when I was editing this podcast the other day, do we need like a cheesy music intro for weird news doesn't hurt we could try to find something <laughs> i think it might be cool i'll, s- I'll see what i can dig up because people yeah. always love cheesy music intros mm. yeah or not <laughs> all right what do you got there you had something about the airline industry i mean uh, who's flying these days what 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 do you what do you got there yeah this was a pretty interesting article that i came across and this was in the mainstream media so this is definitely um you know, a real story and something that most people can probably relate to. Yeah, during these times of COVID, there's not a lot of flights going on right now, but I guess there's more flights going on, more domestic flights within the U.S., certainly more so than there is in Canada. Anyway, the article that I read, it caught my attention because the the, the headline said, Bloody Brawl Breaks Out on Packed Spirit Airlines Flight when sleeping passenger has meltdown over noisy crew. Wait a sec, a sleeping passenger? What does that mean, a sleeping passenger? Yeah, a sleeping passenger has a meltdown. So let, let me explain a little bit more about this. So there was a passenger that was wanting to sleep, and he protested other people, including a flight attendant, who were talking too loudly. And as a result, it ended up in a fisticuffs, punches were thrown, two men were bloodied, 
and as a result, the plane was forced to land for two hours before it was allowed to eventually carry on to Detroit. This was a, a flight from Los Angeles to Detroit. Wow. It's just, it's unreal. We, we all hear the stories about the air rage, and unfortunately, it seems to be more and more common these days. But I suppose it kind of begs the question, are, are expectations unreasonably high when flying on planes? Are we asking too much? And keep in mind that Spirit Airlines, it is a discount airline. So you're paying cheap prices for seat. You're not going to get the red carpet treatment here. You know, we've all been in planes where you've got the crying babies or you've got the annoying people around you. Is, is air rage, is it justified? Was there ever a point where you were justified in raising your voice or, or potentially you know, creating a, a, an uncomfortable situation when you're challenging people? Should, should one expect to sleep on a plane? I don't think so. I, I don't think so. I, I think you just kind of have to grin and bear it. It's, flying on a plane is not necessarily going to be a great experience. So why do we, why do we expect that we're going to get that perfect experience on a, on a plane? The whole experience of flying on planes changed 40 years ago when they deregulated the whole airline industry. And it did become possible to do a, a transatlantic a transatlantic flight or a domestic flight for a portion of what it used to cost to fly. Only the elite flew. Only the people with wealth and substance could actually fly anywhere. When they deregulated, it opened up the whole – it really made it – and this is a good thing, I think, that – average people could fly. You didn't have to be wealthy or elite in any way. You could just just fly to go see your relatives or friends or or whatever just by uh, jumping on an airplane and paying, you know, three, four hundred dollars to fly somewhere as opposed to a few thousand. So, I think you have to balance it out between what it is you're, I mean, if it's, if it's a flight from Los Angeles to Detroit and you don't get a chance to sleep in that flight, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's you got a you're on a flight with 200 plus more other people and if you want to get sleep, go buy a business class ticket and sleep up front where it's a different type of experience. Now you're going to pay five times as much probably to do that, but I think that you just have to, everyone has to be open-minded about what they're going to get on a flight that costs 3 or 400 dollars from Los Angeles to Detroit. So I don't think air rage is ever justified. Absolutely not. But to be upset, ask someone to quiet down. Yeah, it's very risky because you're always going to risk offending somebody. Exactly. We have the right to be annoyed. No question. We, we've all had irritating flights that we've been on. We've all been on bad flights. But to allow it to get to the point where you're literally getting to a punch up with someone, that is taken to the next level. Well, that's 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 going to be something that comes down to people. Some people, just maybe they didn't get sleep the night before. Maybe they're just generally miserable people. There could be a number of factors going on in people's lives that could contribute to that. It's You just, just can't behave that way. Or you're going to get into a lot of trouble. Exactly. Yeah. If you, if you spend a lot of money on a first class ticket, then yeah, I think one should expect better service an opportunity where you get a, a quieter area of the plane where perhaps you could have a, a somewhat decent sleep. But if I'm getting a, a $99 special from Spirit Airlines, from a, a discount airline, I have to temper my expectations a little bit. Again, we have a right to be annoyed, 
but this was an article that really demonstrated that people have taken things way too far. So what happened to this guy? Did he got arrested or how many were multiple people arrested or No, apparently he was not arrested. Uh, I think there was mention in the article where I think when the plane was forced to make an emergency landing, the two individuals who were involved in the flight ended up changing their clothes. They went into the, the bathroom, changed their clothes, and then when when the local police came on board, I think they landed in somewhere in Iowa, I think at that point they had tried to downplay the situation. I think one of the people were removed from the flight, but they were allowed to carry on to their destination on another plane. But it's just bizarre. We're seeing a punch-up on a plane, and there's really no repercussions. That is surprising. There's usually very serious repercussions for things like this. So what, yeah. Who's the source of the article? Uh, this was on mainstream media outlets. So I saw this on, I believe it was on CNN. It was on Fox News. So it's been on, on multiple... Multiple news sources confirm this. Hmm. Hmm. All right. Well, that's, um, I don't know if it's weird news, but it's news and it's disturbing. And yeah, I think, I don't know how much COVID-19 had to do with people's moods right now. That certainly is going to get people elevated in terms of anxiety and, and behavior. So yeah, you just can't behave that way on an airplane. You're going to get into a lot of trouble. Last time we were talking about picking a documentary that we were going to do, so call it, uh, we talked about this movie club, and we picked one, The Great Hack, which is a documentary on Netflix right now, and it's it talks a lot about how your data gets used, Facebook in particular, and Cambridge Analytica. This was a, a big story back in 2018, I believe, around the ways that your data is was being used, and Mark Zuckerberg ended up in front of the Senate over this. And so we chose this documentary because we thought there was a lot of items in this that might be um, worth sharing in terms of, you know, what kind of information Facebook is sharing with people, or what kind of information were they sharing. So what we wanted to get listeners to do is watch The Great Hack. That's what we're, we're going to do. And we're going to come back next episode and break down some of the things from The Great Hack things that we found interesting and, and enlightening from that and share that perspective with our listeners. So we want to ask people to let, watch the documentary, have a listen, and then join us next episode. And we're going to break down some of the things that we discovered. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this segment. This is something new. From what I've seen on the Netflix preview of The Great Hack, it looks extremely interesting, something very relevant to our times. So I'm looking forward to this this review. It should be good. Are you on Facebook? I am, yes. Yeah, it'll, it'll give me second thoughts on this. It's something to think about. Something to think about. It, yeah. it could change our, our habits for sure. All right, great. Well, looking forward to that, and hope listeners will also watch it so they can compare notes. And with that, I think that's a wrap for us for today. Excellent. See you again next week. All right, man. Stay safe. Wash your hands. Yeah, you too. Take care.